Support for To The Point comes from Bausch & Lomb. Beautiful and healthy looking eyes? It shouldn't be a compromise. Lumify Eye Illuminations, developed by the experts at Bausch & Lomb exclusively for the sensitive eye area. To cleanse, nourish, and brighten. Lumify Eye Illuminations, only in the eye care aisle. Ocular surface disease. It's complex, chronic, and progressive, but rife with opportunity for the enterprising optometrist. The mission of this podcast is to make this condition more understandable and accessible to those interested in specializing in it. So let's get to the point. Welcome to another episode of To The Point Podcast, where we are covering all topics dry eye and how to start building your dry eye clinic. Today, we're going to be talking about all of those masqueraders in dry eye. So you're treating for someone for dry eye, and they don't seem like they're responding to the treatment. And today, we're going to be talking about all those little things that can masquerade as dry eye that we should really tackle and be sure that we are looking for when we're examining a patient. So today, I'm joined by my co-host, Leslie Odell. How are you doing, Leslie? I'm doing great. I think these are really important um, areas just because it can sometimes complicate your dry eye um, treatment plan and how you expect a patient to respond to the treatments that you have laid out. So sometimes these masquerade conditions um, don't necessarily mean that dry eye is not present as well, but uh, identifying them and being able to treat them in conjunction with dry eye is important. And if there is not true dry eye, then, you know, treating the masquerade syndrome is going to really help your outcomes with the patients that you're, you're dealing with. Yeah, exactly. So what we're going to cover today is um, we're going to kind of work our way in from the outside of the eye. So we're going to talk about lid issues. We're going to move to conjunctival issues, and then we're going to finish up on the cornea. So let's start with um, lid problems that can masquerade or contribute to dry eye. Yeah. So a lot of these, I think I've learned kind of by trial and error, and a lot of them have come to me through referrals, you know, from other doctors that were sending patients to me that did fail on topical therapies or even treatments that they were performing in the office. And so the, you know, the doctor grew frustrated and then sends on to the expert, if you will. But um, when I evaluate any new patient, especially one that has been to multiple providers ahead of me, I, I do kind of break things down into the, the lid, the conge, and the cornea just to see if I can weed out anything that might have been overlooked. When I'm looking at the eyelid, I, again, always start my slit lamp exam with closed eyes so that I can really evaluate the upper lid, the lash margin, and get a feel for things like blepharitis, um, thinning of lashes, irregular contour, you know, which could indicate um, demodex. So I know we did a deep dive into demodex blepharitis, but really what you want to make sure when you're looking at that superior lid on your slit lamp exam is that you don't see the present of presence of the collarette or that waxy cuff at the base of the eyelash. If that's what you're dealing with, yes, it's promoting inflammation that you're going to then see downstream on your corneal exam or when you're looking at the conjunctival tissue, but it might not respond, you know, to the traditional medications um, as it would. So looking for the collarette at the base of the lash would be my number one thing. 
The other things I do when I'm looking at the lid is actually perform a very easy snap test. And so that is done now open eyed. And actually I might even do this ahead of the slit lamp because it's done outside of your slit lamp. And so I approach the patient, you can use a cotton tip, you can use a clean finger, and you just gently pull down the bottom lid and watch to see how quickly does it snap back um, to the globe. And it helps to show your you know, lid to globe congruity. Sometimes I have done this and the only thing that resets that is the blink. So they have very poor um, muscle tone there. I mean, and obviously if that's happening, it's gonna be pretty difficult for your blink reflex to help distribute tears throughout a day. So that helps me identify things like floppy lids is a big one, um, or even just like an inferior dermatocalasis that might need repaired with a blepher, um, blepharoplasty. And then also with that being said, I pull out again ahead of my slit lamp exam, my transilluminator and darken the room. And I'm looking for inadequate nocturnal lid seal, which is not lag ophthalmos. It's not nocturnal lag ophthalmos, um, but it's actually just you know, an inability of the lid to form a tight seal when the eye is closed. I, I kind of use the analogy of the refrigerator door to my patients. The refrigerator door has that nice seal. When it shuts, it's supposed to make a nice seal. But if you have an old refrigerator and you start losing that seal, it starts to kind of get that wiggle to it. When the refrigerator door closes, you have less, you're, you're more likely to not create a good seal. So sometimes in patients who have floppy lids, um, you're going to notice, or even just aging, um, because that thin, that, because that skin is so thin around the eye, you're going to notice that the lid starts to sag downward. And so a lid that maybe used to close might not close as fully. And, and how I identify that is the darkened room, the transilluminator, um, have the patient close their eyes. And then I place the transilluminator. Usually I start temporally, centrally, and then nasally. And I'm evaluating the lid margin where the lashes are to see if there's any light spill onto the cheek. So when that lid is tightly shut, you're not gonna see a glow coming out where the lashes are. When the lid is not tightly shut, you're gonna get this glow at the lid margin at the lash base. Um, the other thing about that though is your transilluminator is a little heavy. So it takes a little bit of practice. You don't wanna kind of you know, just plop it down on their eyelid because you can sort of fold the lid outward a little, creating a lid seal, inadequate lid seal yourself. So it's sort of more like a gentle placement of the transilluminator. Um, and once you do a few of them, you kind of get the feel just of that weight in your hand and how easy it is to perform. When you're examining for lid seal, where exactly are you placing the transilluminator on this patient's lid? Are you closer to the, you know, eyelid margin or are you higher up? Great question. I use the lid crease as my guide. So probably a little bit higher up than the lash margin for sure. I um, am using that lid crease as the guide and placing the transilluminator kind of right along that um, line, if you will. Okay. And this is referred to as the Corb Blackie, Blackie light yep, test. Corb right. Blackie light test. And really one of the posters that they presented at Arvo was kind of shocking to me. They took um, dry eye patients in one bucket and then they took patients without dry eye in another and what they what they showed was patients who had dry eye that were kind of resistant to traditional therapies 80% of the time had some degree of an inadequate lid seal 
Wow. That's a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> um, and then the same group uh, or the same findings in the group for the non-dry eye patients, um, 80% of them did not have a lid closure issue. So it is a significant, um, you know, I don't even know if I would call it a masquerader. It's more of a... Um, a challenge when you're trying to treat dry eye if you don't identify that ahead of time. And that's because now that patient is going to be having their eye open for however many hours they're fortunate enough to be sleeping. And they don't have that tear film replenishing, you know, with the blink. The closed eye tear are far different than the open eye tear. And it's a, a big risk for evaporative stress, which then can trigger that meibomian gland shut down and obstruction that we know is so challenging to, to treat. Um, so this one, honestly, easy to identify once you just get that transilluminator in hand and start doing it and relatively easy to treat. So when you identify this one, your treatment plan is going to look like, you know, the traditional things that you do for ligophthalmos, gels, ointments. Um, but what I have seen really, really beneficial is um, using some kind of sleep mask that really traps moisture and provides this like, humidity environment um, for the patient. They actually wake up to moist eyes and, and they haven't had that, you know, in a long time ahead of you. And that's what they'll say. I wake up and my eyes don't feel dry to start the day. Um, there's not a lot in that space right now. The one that I is my kind of go-to is um, created by iEco and it's called the iSeal 4.0, uh, a temp, you know, kind of like the airplane mask or the beauty mask that people sleep in isn't going to give you a good enough seal. Um, but I also wouldn't be, you know, worried about telling patients about sleeping with the mask. One of my patients that kind of always stands out was this older gentleman that, you know, I looked at him thinking, there's no chance I'm going to get this guy to sleep with the mask on. He, I don't know. In my mind, he just didn't look like the person that would ever, <laughs> ever do that, you know? And I, it made the biggest impact on him. He was coming back in the office, like super excited, telling me his eyes never felt better and he sleeps with the mask every night. So you do have to kind of get out of your own, you know, however you put your patients into these categories, you know, you just got to tell them what they need and let them help you make what decision, you know, is going to be best. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. So, um, Blef, Demodex, Lid Seal, MGD, Lid Issues. Yeah, definitely. And you know MGD, right? So there's <laughs> the obvious kind and then there's the non-obvious kind. What do you think, you know, what do you think are some tips when you're looking for non-obvious? What do you do? I mean, for in any dry eye exam, in any exam, really, I'm always giving a little push on the glands just to see. I think sometimes it can give the – if you're not actually pushing on those glands to see what's happening and what's coming out of them, you can miss it if they really don't look inflamed and they just kind of look you know, anatomically like a normal gland. So that's one thing I, I'm always doing you know, in the exam. And then obviously the vital dye staining I think is really helpful for that lid wiper issue that you're seeing next to the glands there. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree, especially when you don't have that telangiectasia. If you don't push, you're completely missing. Um, and sometimes when you do push, it's not the toothpaste that you expect to see. It's sometimes nothing. Right, right, exactly. Right? Yep. All right, anything else on lids we want to cover for masqueraders? Um, you know, just just that floppy lid, which again is easy to identify using that snap test. Then I usually parlay that into, you know, 
do you already know you have sleep apnea? Do you have any (laughs) risk factors for sleep apnea? Because that can make a big difference for patients as well. Yeah. Understanding, you know, just the whole body approach. So if you're if you're thinking like, okay, so I've had many patients with floppy eyelids um, that, you know, some are and some are not symptomatic for dry eye, but are you, is your treatment plan for that patient, um, where in the treatment plan is the, is the referral to ophthalmology to maybe tighten that lid? You know, it, that's a, another great question. Um, Support for To The Point comes from Bausch & Lomb. Beautiful and healthy-looking eyes? It shouldn't be a compromise. Lumify Eye Illuminations, developed by the experts at Bausch & Lomb exclusively for the sensitive eye area. To cleanse, nourish, and brighten. Lumify Eye Illuminations, only in the eye care aisle. And I've had a few patients that I worked really hard. So one of the problems with floppy lids, at least from my experience, is uh, meibomian gland dysfunction because there's just not that mechanical force to push the meibum out. So I have done some gland treatments on patients. You know, they've gotten symptomatic relief. We've we've made some improvement on the mybum secretion, but, you know, eight months later, we're right back where we started. Um, you know, and ahead of that, even ahead of my first mybomian gland clearing treatment, we had the talk. For me in my area, sometimes the trick that I run into is that um, the surgeons that I'm referring to don't always do what I think that they should um, at the time that they should. So, so you know, really it, it's a conversation to have with your referring surgeons. You know, what's their comfort level? You know, sometimes it's a coverage issue. You know, they can't get coverage for certain surgeries. It's getting harder for the oculoplastics, I know, at least in my area, to get certain things covered, even with photo documentation. So just really sitting down and kind of figuring out with your referring Um, oculoplastics, you know, what are they looking for? Because to me, you know, if I can tighten that bottom lid, it makes a world of difference. A patient that really sticks out in my mind about floppy lids, I performed that snap test that we spoke of earlier and the lid just hung down. It didn't want to snap back at all. The only thing that reset it in his case was the blink. He had been on and off, you know, corticosteroids, on and off, other anti-inflammatory treatments. He had been through meibomian gland treatments over the course of probably I was working with him for two or three years. And finally, I, you know, and actually not finally, he had been to a few oculoplastics over the way um, as well. But we, you know, really pushed hard for him to have surgery to tighten that bottom lid. And it was life changing. Oh, wow. It was kind of like, you know, as soon as he healed from that he had, it was so much easier to control his symptoms. So sometimes you just have to really, you know, talk to the referring doctors that you're working with, get a feel for their comfort level. If they aren't doing certain procedures that you want, try to find somebody else in your area that is. Um, I've had that, you know, be the case a couple of times as well. Is that something that is typically covered by insurance? I actually don't know that. Like if they, if they want that repair. Um, in this case, I know it was covered by his Medicare insurance, but I think um, it's just sometimes laborious, like to get the paperwork to prove it. Um, and I think just some of the insurance, it might not be Medicare, but it could be some of the more commercial payers that are a little bit more strict on the guidance. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the anti-aging, the cosmetic push, right? Sure. So because this it, this area of, of the skin is so thin, obviously it's the first to age. So, you know, they want to make sure that they're paying for medically needed things, not the cosmetic. Yeah. Um, 
side of it. You were speaking to the vital dyes, and I think that's a great way to transition to how I do the exam to find another thing, which is, you know, kind of grouped into this mechanical dry eye or conjunctivo chalasis. A lot of these things, myself, personally, I kind of learned by getting burned. <laughs> um, you know, I was treating something and thinking, why is this not getting better? And then I would learn about a new, you know, not even new, but new to me problem. And that's also how conjunctivo chalasis was for me. But this is the root of chronic inflammation. So, you know, there's always the debate, oh, can I manage dry eye with tears? You know, and and no, it is an inflammatory condition. And if you are just managing it with artificial tears and you're not implementing some kind of anti-inflammatory treatment along the, you know, the path of that patient, here's where your downstream is. Now you have these, you know, significant changes to the conjunctival tissue um, where it becomes boggy, it disrupts the natural tear flow. It creates a problem sometimes even with the drainage, meaning that that tissue can bog up over top of the punctum and really create like epiphora for the patient. Um, so it, it really obliterates the normal tear reservoir um, and the tear meniscus. And so if you can treat and treat aggressively early in the disease process, we wouldn't be at the point you know, of this mechanical dry eye um, further downstream for many of our patients. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's really, when you're looking at a dry eye patient, it's really easy to be like, okay, lids clean. Like, do they have MGD? All right, let's see what the cornea is doing and like blow right past the conjunctiva. So I think the dyes actually really help highlight that, um, that issue. But even just in a resting position, you can see where that conjunctiva is just heaped up on that lower lid. Yeah. And sometimes though, easy to miss. And um, I will look at the patient at the slit lamp and have them take a few blinks. You know, you're doing that anyway because you're you're looking at their tear breakup time. But you really kind of monitor that to see is it coming up over the cornea. A lot of times that tissue is so boggy when they blink, it comes up over the inferior cornea. So if you're seeing a lot of inferior staining and they don't have inadequate lid seal or lag ophthalmos. Um, or MGD. Another thing to really pay attention to is, is there this conjunctivo chalasis that's creating a problem with how the inferior cornea is wetting or even, you know, dragging across the inferior cornea. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be managed, you know, a few different ways and it can worsen with cataract surgery. That's something that I learned kind of the hard way. So my mother-in-law um, had cataract surgery, but ahead of that, she suffered a lot with dry, dry eye and allergies, and she was a big eye rubber. And that's one of the things that you don't want to be doing throughout your life because it's going to help loosen the conjunctival tissue. But, you know, I often would just see her kind of, you know, doing the eye rubbing, especially late summer, um, through, you know, throughout our visits. She had cataract surgery, beautiful cataract surgery, 2020 vision, and she could not get rid of this epiphora. What was happening in her case was the conjunctiva, the conjunctiva chalasis worsened temporarily, you know, because inflammation worsens temporarily after cataract surgery as well, um, and it blocked her punctum. So tears were just dripping from the center of her eye, <laughs> um, and, you know, it was making her miserable. In her case, we really worked hard on everything that was anti-inflammatory through medications. We worked on things like environment, trying to keep humidity at a certain level to try to help with any overnight dryness that could be occurring. She even did things as far as um, 
decreasing her salt intake because those things um, were guidance from an oculoplastic surgeon in my area to try to do all these lifestyle modifications ahead of the referral to him for surgery. It, he was saying it's kind of in his practice. Now, this isn't for everybody, but he was saying like 50-50. Sometimes he can modify it just by hitting it hard, drops, environment, lifestyle, and then 50% of the time he does have to take the next step, which is, you know, performing a treatment that reduces that tissue by cautery. Um, and then a lot of times they'll place amniotic tissue there to help with um, healing and, and inflammation. Uh, and that's now called, res uh, part of that's called reservoir restoration. So by reducing that conjunctival tissue, you're helping to create a better tear reservoir for the patients. I'm actually kind of surprised that it's a 50-50. I would think that um, getting that conjunctiva to shrink down with just drops and lifestyle modifications, I would think that wouldn't be so successful. You, you know, and I actually, I, you know, would totally agree. But again, I think that where I am in Pennsylvania is just a little bit limited. Um, this was actually a two hour away referral that I was speaking uh, yeah. to. Um, I don't have a surgeon in my area yet that was doing conjunctivoshalasis repair. Um, but that doesn't mean that they aren't going to start soon. And sometimes it's just saying, hey, I have a lot of these patients. I think it would bring value to our area, you know, and also to your practice if, if we could get that service done locally. Um, you know, I know in some areas that this is probably, you know, performed a lot more commonplace. Yeah. So it, I think it's more just where you Regional. are geographically, <laughs> what kind of surgeons you're working for yeah. or with alongside. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, let's move into the cornea and talk about the other masquerader EBMD. Again, vital dyes, so important. And, and a lot of times, I mean, EBMD, easy to find when it's centrally located, when it's inferior. Um, but I think what, you know, you can often overlook is the subtle EBMD when it's first beginning. And your fluorescein dye is so good at highlighting that for you. And so with this, I usually will put my fluorescein dye in. What I do um, uh, right after I place it, um, kind of in line with when I'm looking at the tear breakup time is I lift up the upper lid just slightly away from the conjunctiva to reveal the superior cornea. So when you're looking at your slit lamp, a little bit of the cornea is hiding underneath the upper lid. And if you don't do that, you know, that simple thing of just lifting up the upper lid to look at the superior cornea, you can often find EBMD. Um, that's kind of missing or hiding. When you lift the superior lid, you get to see some very early changes to um, map dot dystrophy or EBMD. You know, and it, remember it's that negative stain, kind of the fluorescein pools around the edge. You might just see almost like a comma instead of a circle when it's early in the formation. But that disrupts a lot of the, the way that the tears kind of anchor throughout the day. So it's going to accelerate things like evaporation. It's going to, you know, if you're not treating that, it's going to also make it just challenging to get your patient fully, you know, feeling better. Sometimes it's the blurry vision complaint as well. With EBMD in that form, that super mild kind of hiding up underneath the upper lid, sometimes those patients will also present with some morning symptoms where they feel like their lid is kind of stuck 
So it's not a recurrent erosion, um, but it's the beginning of the process that gets us to recurrent erosion. So sometimes they will respond with lubricants at night. Um, I really like, you know, not to call out certain, you know, I really like some gel tears for those patients. I, I guess maybe, you know, genteel gel, if you can find genteel gel that's in the um, moderate to severe seems to work well for those patients. Um, other things would be an ointment. Um, again, that uh, a mask that seals around their eye and helps create a humidity environment overnight can be beneficial. This is a great place for, for drops like um, Fresh Coat as well. So I have a lot of success using Fresh Coat tears for my early EBMD patients as well. Can you talk a little bit about Fresh Coat? I know that there are a lot of people really like that drop, but can you talk about why that's a good drop? So Fresh Coat is um, made by Ivance. It's now a drop that's no longer. It, it kind of it was an interesting um, medicate eye drop because it started out that you had to write a prescription for it um, years ago. Then patients could get it over the counter, but they at least again in my area they would have to ask the pharmacist. Sometimes the pharmacist would have to order it. Um, but now it's actually available through Ivance for retail in our clinics, and it's different. It's a different tier because it's really helping all three layers of the tear film, and that's because of the components that make it up. Um, there's povidone two percent, which helps with um, the lipid layer of the tear film, helps with reducing evaporation, um, helps with kind of um, you know spreadability, if you will, of the tears. There is a lacrophilic aqueous solution in here as well that helps with both the lipid and the mucin layers. And then there is a polymer blend that helps with the wettability of the tear. So it's really a very scientific tear, which many tears, you know, are when you kind of break down the ingredients. But this one is definitely unique um, and, and gets a lot of good feedback from doctors around corneal things such as, you know, EBMD um, for sure. Yeah, I've, I've heard um, a lot of doctors really talk um, highly and speak highly of fresh coat. So it's good to know. Okay, good. All right. We covered a lot of masqueraders. Did we forget anything? Did we well, get we them all? we might have. <laughs> There's probably, probably one something. that I'm still waiting to learn about <laughs> as well. Um, you know, another, right. you know, another challenging patient that will teach me something else. But as long as we keep learning, do you feel like there's anything that right. you have? No, I think we, I think we got them all. And yeah, do you think that, good. you know, when you have some of your challenging dry eye patients, that some of these that we talked about have been your hang up, um, you think, oh, I want to actually go back and look at Mr. Jones's chart to see maybe he does have one of these things. Has it sparked any of that for you? Well, I, I definitely had an instance where I missed, I saw the conjunctival chalasis, but I just didn't think too much of it in this setting that of, of dry eye that this patient had. So um, this is when I was working with my ophthalmology group um, and my corneal surgeon ended up saying like, oh yeah, I just performed procedure to kind of shrink down that conjunctivalasis. And I was like, oh yeah, I probably should have maybe paid a little more attention to it. So I think this is like a nice refresher to, you know, look at everything. I think it's really easy to be like very targeted and how you're looking at dry eye and you want to look at that cornea and see what that's doing, but you can easily kind of forget some of these other things. So it's a good refresher to think about. And now for the to the point wrap up. When treating dry eye disease, it's important to identify things that can coexist and complicate your treatment. 
sometimes known as masquerade syndromes. When you're dealing with the eyelid, these can be floppy lid syndrome or inadequate nocturnal lid seal, even demodex blepharitis. The conjunctiva can create some problems with conjunctivochalasis or mechanical dry eye. And then with the cornea, if you're not lifting and looking at the superior cornea in particular, you might miss early, subtle EBMD or map dot dystrophy. Identifying them and developing treatment plans in conjunction with your dry eye treatment can go a long way to better outcomes.